Let us pray once again. Oh Lord, it is through your blood that we can come to you. Not because of our righteousness, not because of anything in us. We now come, Lord, to this moment of opening up a portion of your words. And we pray for your presence. We pray for your spirit to be at work. And Lord, be with thy servant to be at your presence, find strength in you. And Lord, speak to us. Speak to us and let us listen. Let us heed to thy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During the Watergate scandal, people regarded it as a compliment to be associated in the Nixon's enemies list. They took it actually as a credit to them that people in the administration opposed them. We could think about right now with uh, Trump, with all of his imperfection, in a, what, what will it feel like to have that kind of opposition? And friends, in a similar way, but far greater way, if you have enemies because of your righteousness, it will be a credit to you. God tells us that we should actually be glad that we have that kind of enemy. That whenever we are persecuted because of righteousness sake, it means that we are not doing what the world does. And instead, we are doing what unrighteous men hate. And one of the sad and greatest truths of the gospel that we see this morning the ways particularly that people respond to Jesus and his message is that, think for a second, he's the most hated man on earth, but he's also the most loved man on earth in the entire human history. And what we see today is that we either hate or we love Jesus. There's no third option for us. We begin chapter 7. Of the Gospel of John, continuing this section of John, which remember was rotating around Jewish festivals. And we already done most of the miracle. Jesus uh, has only two last miracles, the greatest miracles that are still to come the resurrection of Lazarus and the healing of a blind man. But he has already done almost all the miracles by this time. His popularity has grown. However, remember, in the midst of rejection, and these sermons that we are going through here in John from Jesus are very tough because we are in a tough spot in the gospel, okay? It's uh, what the celebration should be a feast of tabernacle becomes almost a feast fight for us this morning. We left last Sunday with a marvelous confession of Peter, to whom shall we go? But also we saw the leaving away of the majority of the followers of Jesus, after Jesus warned them of the coming cost of discipleship. Now that cost of discipleship is showing up for us in this story. It begins to show itself. Jesus not only faces a negative response, but he starts to face open opposition, persecution. And particularly we see the Jewish authority begin to make plans to kill Jesus. Why? Because of this tension between the earthly, the worldly, 
and the heavenly realities. All the way to chapter 10, this section is peculiar to this gospel. We don't find any of the, the things written here in other gospels. It's a very long and a very hard passage. So we'll take it to the entirety, chapter 7. We'll focus on just selected verses. And hold on because the best part of this message will be at the end. I know we slowed down last week. We now put the uh, accelerator a bit. One thing you see there is the refer, refer, reference to the feast. The feast of tabernacle three times in this passage. Which is supposed to again be a celebration, right? Instead, three times in the passage there is this word that they sought to kill Jesus. Things are going very hard for Jesus. So that, to the point that he has to... There's, a, there's an atmosphere of fear, a secrecy here among people because they're seeking to kill him. So what do we see in chapter 7? We see the, the mounting opposition, okay? There's a very much mounting opposition from the Jews toward Jesus. However, in the midst of that mounting opposition, Jesus reiterates, repeats the fact that he comes from God, that he, he has heavenly origins, and he still calls people to find true life by believing in him. The theme of water comes again. Drink from me. But again, the, the general mounting opposition is, is the focus of chapter 7. And uh, let's start with some of the ways that opposition shows itself. The first one, verses 1 through 9, is that Jesus faces apathy among comrades. And by comrades, I mean siblings. His own immediate family. In other words, as Jesus reveals more of his heavenly nature as he has done through the gospel, he also becomes more of a stranger to his closest relatives, to his closest acquaintances. Notice their unbelief in verses 1 to 5. Our text begins with Jesus not going back to Judea because there was a price on his head. It's like you're in the far west and there's a wanted sign, and on that wanted sign is, is Jesus. Yet the fact that later he still goes to Jerusalem despite how the tension is rising here, the opposition is rising, shows you that he has courage and bravery in face of opposition because he is driven, remember, by his mission. He has a task to accomplish. And God sovereignly protects him through that task. Verse 2 tells us again the, the background of this Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of Boots or of Shelters. Uh, it's also called the Feast of an Ingathering. And that feast was at hand. The Jews call this the Feast of Sukkoth. Okay? It's the third and greatest annual Jewish festivals of the Jewish religion. It's the fourth on the Jewish calendar. And it's uh, celebrated by the Jews still to this day after the Day of Atonement. It lasted for a long time. It was a seven-day feast. And it was one of the most popular and important festival of Judaism, you, you imagine it was almost like a gala day full of joy. And every Israelite was required to go to Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus' family obviously is making preparation to make their travel from Galilee to Jerusalem as pilgrims. It was celebrated this feast after the harvest in autumn, which combined the ingathering of the, the labor of the field. You can think of this as like a Thanksgiving feast. And... Uh, People left their homes to live in boots. To this day, the Jewish people do this. I, I was in Amsterdam, and I remember even downtown Amsterdam, 
you can see a Jewish home because during that period they, they have an actual booth outside in their garden and they have to spend the night there uh, and it was a memorial it was to be a memorial for the Jewish people of their wandering in the wilderness however for Jesus this Thanksgiving feast becomes more like a Halloween where things go very dark why because he, he faces opposition in the midst of all this devotion, everyone is thrilled by the celebration of ceremony. There is actually a very difficult time for Jesus. Few Jews really understand the meaning of why they're keeping the feast. It was supposed to be a thanksgiving for the memorial of the wandering in the wilderness. But they show no thanks for the spiritual harvest that Jesus is bringing. And in fact, we could say they're still wandering in their spiritual desert. I think of my Catholic family back in Italy. Anyone goes through the Easter week as a Catholic. Oh, it's everything about the cross. Everything is about, you know, we got to celebrate. We got to remember. And they're all going through the motions. They have no clue what that cross means. They have no clue what it means to actually internalize that cross by faith. They're just going through the motion. And what is supposed to be a very nice celebration about Christ, it's actually pathetic. That's why Chuck Smith said this about ritualism. Ritualism is nothing more than a rut and the only difference between the rut and a grave is the length and the depth. There's, a, there's something of a deception here of the empty outward religion. Even Christian religion, okay? To follow traditions and, and you still miss the eternal truth behind those things. Jesus is speaking with devout Jews here, remember. He's not speaking to pagans, unbelievers. You think these people thought, I observed certain ceremony, I, I am pleasing God. And the truth is, that is not the case. In fact, their heart is not in it. And in fact, they are rejecting God's word. Look at verse 3 and 4. There's a family scene here in Nazareth probably, around the table. And Jesus' brothers are pushing their stepbrother to go to Jerusalem. Go, so that your disciples... Not our disciples. We don't want to have anything to do with it. They're pushing Jesus to display himself to the world like a fortune seller. To display supernatural powers for sure. Gather the crowds that he just dispersed. Their words are very sarcastic here. They're making fun of Jesus like Jacob, other sons did with Joseph. Essentially out of jealousy. And verse 5 tells us the reason that Jesus' family was pushing him like this. That not even his brothers believed in him. That is the sadness of these words that you would expect they would believe being exposed to the Savior day after day. Instead, they didn't. His own brothers, which by the way has to refer to biological brothers, including James who later will become a disciple. But at this point, they are not having any faith. They're not adhering. They're not relying on Christ in His message they're almost saying, get out of here, go to the feast. In fact, they're trying to get him to go alone to Jerusalem because they thought, yes, he's our brother, but they, they, wanna, they don't want to be associated to Jesus. And so we're already seeing this chapters ago that a prophet is not welcome in his own country. But let, again, let me emphasize this, how true followers of Christ will face rejection from their closest acquaintance. It is definitely something disappointing. Is a reason for grief, if not frustration, sometimes even anger. How can they not see 
How can they despise me and Jesus this way? But instead, brother or sister, I want to tell you, you are supposed to rejoice. Rejoice as you face it from unbelieving family that Jesus actually sympathized with us because he went through it before you with his own earthly family. And that is the painful truth that the nearest to Jesus do not believe in his divine mission. But then look at the worldliness that they are wrapped into. Verse 6 to 9. Three times in this chapter, the word hour comes to the surface. The appointed hour has not come. Now my wife tells my daughter, you know what time it is of the day, do you? And she's silently looking at the book. She knows she's supposed to go to take a nap. She doesn't like it. So here, the appointed hour is the time referring to when Christ comes to bear the cross. Essentially, His death in Jerusalem. He will die for the sins of His true sheep. Just like He said to His mother at His first miracle, remember, at wedding of Canaan, My hour has not yet come. He's there at the table in Nazareth with all His natural families. It repeats and it, on paper refuses to go to the feast to at least do, do so publicly to avoid a premature death. Because there's a price on his head. And he adds a critic to their statement. He says, your time is always ready. In other words, they always have a chance to show their disbelief toward God. They're at ease all the time, at ease in this world. Because they are like the world. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you. This theme of world is throughout the Gospel of John, a central theme. In coming chapters we'll see. It refers to the evil system under which the present earth is under. The worldly system of value. That is also under the deception of the prince of this world, which is Satan. The way that people usually think about God. But it's not able to hate you. There's a law at work here. That the world, hating those who are worldly... Unbelievers or even false believers like his brothers want to go to the Jewish feast, that would break the law that the quarrel of the world and Satan is not against those who are unconverted. In fact, he takes unconverted people and he makes them feel good about themselves. He makes them feel good about their sin. Unless they join the enemy. Unless they really go under the lordship of God. The world simply cannot hate you. The world cannot be up in arms against you because worldly, unbelieving brothers of Jesus, and behind them, by the way, it's the entire nation of Israel at this time, the so-called Israelites, they reject the Messiah. And you don't expect the world to hate those who are from the world. And instead, Satan has nothing against worldly people who call themselves Christians. But he hates me continuously, Jesus. The world, and particularly the Jewish religious leader here, we'll see in in coming verses, they hate the truth. They hate Jesus. They hate Jesus' true followers. Why do they hate Jesus so much? Because Jesus is a smell of death to the unbelieving person. He convicts them of sin. I testify of the world that its works are evil. Jesus is accusing and denouncing their sin, giving evidence of their sin, and their way of conduct, their lifestyle is wicked. That behind the pretension of religiosity... That makes them hate Jesus. The the true Jesus, you see, convicts them of their sin. And the problem is that they don't like it. They hate him for doing that. John Owen, a famous Puritan, said this, I do not understand 
how a man can be a true believer in whom sin is not the greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. That, that you are loved by the world as a professing Christian. Realize that if you're in Christ, your universal value and this world are supposed to be at war. And war, friends, just like in this text, starts at home. That's where the war starts. Let me say something here. Christ comes. He says that throughout the gospel. I came to bring this word. See, just because you come to Christ, don't expect your family member to automatically understand what that means. That we need to see something, that the natural family and God's family are two different things. They were in the life of Jesus. They must be in our mind. There is a difference between a biblical understanding of God's family, the church, and a cultural understanding of what a family is. Uh, we covered this in the past, but again, who is my brother? Who is my sister? Who is my mother, says Jesus? The one who listened to the word of God and puts it in practice. That is my, my brother. That is my family. See that? It's, it's for believers. People who are credibly professing faith. People who are actually not the natural family. You see, we cannot actually push ourselves to see, well, God's family and my family must be the same. And therefore, regardless of how they stand with the Lord, we put them together. Jesus' example here is instructive for us. Should be doubly cautious before assuming that someone that we love, obviously, joins us with Christ before that is clear. To this day, after 10 years, none of my natural family has professed faith in Jesus Christ. That is the truth that Jesus' brothers, they come to the temple, to Jerusalem for the feast. That is not my family. That's what Jesus is saying. And so let me say a word of caution here. Don't put your family interest above those of Christ and His Word. Especially if it leads to, come to cutting corner, making exception to the command of God. Because that would be not to follow Jesus. I know it might sound unloving to some, but this is what it means to be faithful to the simple biblical reality. Natural family and, and, and God's family are two different things. And when they collide between each other, I am called as a disciple of Christ to... Put God first. Even hate my own natural family, which doesn't mean now you, you start to hate them. But you say, listen, my loyalty to Christ here comes first. Or you cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus says. That, that's how startling Jesus puts it. So our discipleship requires, requires our responsibility, but also our sovereignty. We see here the sovereignty of God, the appointed hour for everything. There's a time for Jesus to serve and the time to face opposition for such service. That's why Jesus did everything by the clock. His entire life was arranged around the eternal purposes of God, the Father. Let us do the same in confidence that even if you face hatred because of your godliness from, from man, it's under divine control. It grants you heavenly rewards. Not in this world, but in the next but we also have a responsibility here. It's like Jesus is among wolves here. Both in his family, both in Jerusalem with the people and the Pharisees. And we, Jesus prays for, however, not for them. He prays for the disciples, not the world. And he says to us, if the world hates me, knows that if they hate you, they hated me first. So you and I are not called to 
as we saw last time, gather crowd, please the unbeliever out there so that he might feel comfortable coming among us in the church. No, it's actually the opposite. We take our timetable, our personal purposes, and we open ourselves even to a downhill if it means to bear a cross because we follow the one who bore the cross for us. But you see, it would be all fine if we just do what the world wants us to do. If we seek the earthly vainglory that the Pharisees were looking, we seek the praise of man, fame craving, or you gather crowd, you basket their adoration. But Jesus is not doing this. When true holiness comes into the world, and I'm not talking about the pretentious manufactured devotion of the Jewish people, but when true holiness comes into the world, you expose sin, the self-righteousness of people who went to the feast, unlike everyone else. You point the pride, the blindness of the religious entourage of the day. No wonder you might be in the receiving end of hate, despising, treachery, even by the hand of the high priest in the temple. So friends, be ready for it. Don't shun it. Don't get discouraged by it. Instead, rejoice and be glad. When men will say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. But let also warn you that if you never experience hate, from this world, because of your faith, there's a reality check that needs to happen. That if the world loves its own and you have the world's blessing and friendship, according to John, the love of the Father is not in you. And you see that in the coming verses, that it's actually what happens in the, in the people. The second thing that we see is not only from the Comrade from the siblings, there is uh, this apathy, but there's also antipathy among the, the Jewish crowds. And there you, you have listed some of the verses that instead of believing Jesus is sent from God and goes back to God, many Jews superficially dismiss Jesus. They say, this guy is crazy. And, and by doing that, by the way, they are forfeiting their access to God. Look at the bias of the crowds here. The, the, the sermons of Jesus here, Similar to what we've seen so far, Jesus doesn't promote himself, he's, he's innocent, and he answers their, their unbelief by saying, my teaching comes from God. And there in verse 20, this is their reaction. They mocked and insulted him. You have a demon. You are demon-possessed. So just like a demon-possessed man, they thought that Jesus was raving and crazy, out of his mind. What an insult to call the Savior, the Son of God, this way. And verse 21 continues that the, the, there's this controversy that started in chapter 5 over the Sabbath and him healing in the Sabbath. And Jesus wants to make them all the more inexcusable by speaking of circumcision. Okay? You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. That doesn't break the Sabbath. And is actually obeying God's commandment. So if I heal a, a crippled man like he did in chapter 5, that doesn't break the Sabbath. But it's actually obeying another commandment to have a work of mercy. So, verse 24 says, Do not judge according to appearance. That was the problem of the crowds, and particularly the religious leaders. Outward standards by what they I saw, outwardly and superficially. But, that doesn't mean that now they stop judging. Look at the next part of verse 24. Judge with righteous judgment, correctly, according to what is right. The, the, the fact that, they are not doing. They, they know that Jesus stands in front of them. He does miracles, but they do not know God. We often, often say, don't judge a book by its cover. 
You see a tall guy, you assume he must play basketball. You see a poor person and you assume that he's mentally poor. And the Pharisee graduated on religious appearance. How do I look before others? But they missed God visiting them through Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 2 says, You have no excuse, O man, who judges for impassing judgment. You condemn yourself for you. The reason why this is a problem is not the judgment, but that you, the judge, practice the very same things. See, the, the greatest problem with those who reject Christ is that they're rejecting a superficial idea of what Christianity really is. They relies on prejudice instead of the scripture. And uh, their opinion is often showing ignorance of God and His Word. It's better to say, I don't know, than to claim and, and dismiss something that you don't understand. And that is the problem. So the worst case is people who claim to believe God like here, and they reject the truth. And they excuse themselves of what they accuse others to do. And uh, so let us not follow their steps. But ultimately their behavior is, is a symptom that they're lost. That's verse 33 to 36. They threat to arrest Jesus. But Jesus says, give me some time. I'm about to leave this world. Not just leaving the temple, but leave the world and go back to the Father. And he says to them, verse 34, you will seek me, but you will not find me. They definitely will find him when they will arrest him and, and put him on trial and, and put him on the cross. But after that, they will not be able to stop Jesus. He will rise again from the dead and ascend into the Father. This word is the reverse of the Old Testament promise. You, you know from Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and you will find me when you will seek me with all your heart. Which that told, tells you that the Pharisees, it is evident that their heart of the Jews is not toward God. So they will seek in vain God when Jesus is gone. He will not be found by them. It's too late. I mean, Jesus has done so many miracles before them already. And they still reject. And now, what else? They want to kill Jesus. And where I go, you cannot come. He's talking about heaven there. In, in, in future chapter, chapter 8, he will say, You will die in your sin. By implication, they will go to hell. Despite their claim to believe and serve God of Israel, there will be no place for them with the Moses that they so much love to cling to. And so there's pride, there's self-glory. There you have it. The love of the praise of man, whatever it is. All these things are springing from the same root that we address it over and over. Unbelief. Friend, if you keep rejecting Jesus and His Word, don't wonder if He will reject you on that day. When we knock on heaven's door, if you reject Jesus, you reject God. You have to be under Him as Lord and Savior. Otherwise, God will not be your Father. That is the time for us, friends, to seek Him while He may be found, which means before it's too late. This is the time to welcome and honor Jesus Christ. Otherwise, He will not welcome and honor us. And this hate toward Jesus in the crowds get even worse. Look at the next point. that They start to show aggression, particularly the clergy. They start to attack Jesus openly. These are the religious leaders. Supposedly, supposedly they are representing God on earth. But they are jealous over the impact that Jesus is is particularly superior wisdom to their earthly wisdom on the crowds. So what do they do? They make their first attempt to arrest and kill Jesus. Notice how there's a chatting about Jesus, a whispering. Verse 10 tells us that now we are in the temple, 
Jesus goes to the feast, which doesn't contradict what we saw earlier. It's just that he went on cover, undercover, without his natural family. And everyone there is wondering about Jesus. They're whispering and they're whispering because they don't want to get in trouble with the religious leaders. And they're, they're murmuring. Verse 12 tells us, in a low tone of voice, kind of a behind-the-scene talk, everyone is talking about Jesus. Makes me think about a movie that I was watching just last week about Oliver Cromwell. It was a, the Civil War, English Civil War. You have the King of England who was about to lose his kingdom. He gets beheaded. But he's still on this uh, court, and he's trying to map out what are we going to do to attack and to take over. And all the generals are talking about Cromwell, 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 Cromwell. And the king gets upset. Everyone is talking about Cromwell here. we got to find a solution. But the point is Jesus right here. They don't like Jesus. But they cannot focus still on their feast of their empty religion. And they keep talking about him even if they hate him. There's a great deal of discussion. Some say, he's good. Others say, no, he, he, he's causing people to wander from the truth. See, you, you either hate or you love Jesus right there. But the problem here of the crowd is the fear of men, which is a snare. They fear the loss of reputation, persecution, violence by professing to follow Jesus. And so they whisper the truth, because, not because they have a genuine concern to uphold the truth. No, they're afraid of the repercussion if they stand up for Jesus. They don't want to be associated with the culprit. Whether Jesus is truthful or not doesn't matter to them. They remain hidden for fear of public attacks. But friends, no true follower of Christ can stay in the dark. No true follower of Christ can pretend that remaining silent when you know the truth is an option. Interesting also how when Jesus preaches in verse 15, they marvel. How can this man have such wisdom, okay? They wonder, he says, how does he know letter? It's almost, they're saying he's ignorant. But he never studied. He has never had any theological degree, never attended the rabbinic school in Jerusalem. But this should have been a hint to them that this man comes from God. And instead, they rejected him. The, despite the powerful preaching of Christ, despite the heavenly qualifications he's got, he doesn't experience at all any success here, okay? He's got a crowd of people who are trying to hate to kill him, just so you know. This text is not suggesting that now theological training is a, a bad thing, okay? I realize that some churches despise learning and, and, and that, that allows false doctrine to creep into the church. No, the issue is the difference between earthly and heavenly wisdom, okay? Obviously, God on earth doesn't need to have education. God made flesh as perfect wisdom. And that is the reason why He is perfectly knowledgeable, it's more like a warning that we, we should never boast in outward learning, but also encourage us to seek to be faithful, just like Christ was faithful, even with meager results. But again, this is the prophet of Jesus. This is, this is how Jesus is a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets were always rejected. And here Jesus is almost like Romans 10, 21. All the day long, I stretch forth my hand to a disobedient people verse 25 continues the chattering of the crowd they are perplexed because now jesus has a warrant of arrest on his head but he's preaching publicly perhaps the religious leaders have converted but again they're still judging jesus to be earthly and they deny the messiah 
the fact that he is the Christ. And that is the problem that Albert Barnes put it in this way. There is nothing more foolish than wickedness. There is no wisdom equal to that of obeying God. You see that because of their wickedness, then they have no wisdom to offer. Jesus is the talk of many in this world. And when you get exposed to Jesus in his word, you either hate him or you love him. There's no third middle way. Isn't it interesting how people call Jesus a lunatic or they say, no, he's God. Either they will claim that Christianity is a retrograde problem, a retrograde religion. And they cannot make sense of why so many people actually are Christians. Or they will receive the wisdom from above that comes from Christ and they will believe. Paul tells us in, the, in his letters, where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the debater of this age? God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. The wisdom, the wisdom of Christ is not taught by human wisdom. It's not like earthly and demonic wisdom. It comes, as we'll see in coming points, by the Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, you cannot make sense of the truth. And notice also that these Jewish leaders... It's what I tell, for example, to my students when I teach in Franklin. An educated mind is no guarantee of a sanctified and pure heart. I mean, look what this Jewish leader wants to do. They want to kill Jesus. Verse 30 tells us they sought to kill him. But the beauty of this is that it's not yet the time. The hour has not yet come. So God sovereignly protects him. They send guards to arrest Jesus. Verse 32. To stop him from being so popular. And again, interesting debate there in 41 to 45. That they understand the prophecy of the Old Testament. Ironically, they don't realize that just because Jesus is from Galilee. It doesn't mean he wasn't born in Bethlehem. It doesn't mean he's not from the, the line of David. It doesn't mean that he's not the Messiah. It's a small town back top of the woods that cannot become the president of the United States. That is the irony of their thinking here. So they want to seize and kill him. And look at the guards, verse 46. They come back. Their answer is emblematic for us. No man ever spoke like this man. And it's incredible when even the enemies of Christ are summoned to arrest Jesus, have to, are forced to acknowledge that there's something special about the words that Jesus say. Even with all their treacheries, their words is glorifying God here. That no one ever spoke like Jesus. And in fact, no one can ever compare to His word and wisdom. And you know what was the secret? It wasn't in earthly smartness or pedigree or social status. But because Jesus, yeah, He is poor. Yes, He comes from Galilee. His disciples are just fishermen. But He is God on earth. And he has perfect communion with the Father. And friends, if only we will seek the wisdom that comes from him. And we will have to admit even like the enemies of God do to the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts of the Apostles. They're gathering him. He comes before the, the same people who killed Jesus. The same people who speaks here. And in Acts 4.13 they say this. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, but they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There's a communion with God that flows in wisdom. Verse 47 to 53 shows us that, however, the religious leaders, they, they don't like this. 
and they rebuke the guards and they say, come on, none of the religious leaders have believed Jesus. The crowd is just ignorant. And the irony is that here you have Nicodemus. We saw him in chapter 3. At least he seeks to dissuade this, this uh, thought of murder. and say, oh, you have to have a proper trial. So what do we make of this? The people of every age and nation will be where are always divided over Jesus. There are several responses to Jesus we see here. Some really hate him. And they hate him because their deeds are showing that they don't hate the God they profess to worship. They love God with their mouth but not with their action. They don't believe because they're unwilling to discern the truth and follow what truth implies for their own lives. Others are still perplexed. At least they admit there's something special about the man, like the guards. But friends, neither of this option is the right answer to Jesus. Both of these options fall short of salvation. And salvation and the ultimate goal of the words of God, that God is not pleased ultimately with anything short than true, genuine faith in Christ. True, genuine, bowing down to His words. And on that note, let, let's move to our last point, the most encouraging part of our text. Yes, I, after all this hate, the family hates Jesus. The crowds are in antipathy with Jesus. The, the religious leaders, the clergy, it's trying to assassinate Jesus. At least the true believers receive Jesus. And here we have the acceptance among the converts. Verse 31 37 to 39. There you see that some from the crowds, thankfully, do believe in Jesus and do answer his call, the marvelous call in the Feast of Tabernacles to satisfy their thirst in Christ. That is the most beautiful, wonderful ending of this sermon of Jesus. They, first of all, but let's meditate on why. They recognize the miracles of Jesus. The, 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 that he is undeniable. Okay, verse 31. Yes, you have loud opponents but many believe in Jesus. And here, here's their reasoning. Jesus cannot do the miracles He does without being the Messiah. I mean, what other pro proofs do we need? And so they recognize Him as the prophet, verse 40. The Christ, the Messiah. And verse 37 to 31, 38, sorry, shows us that they, unlike the others, receive the spiritual satisfaction that comes by trusting in Christ. Look at the beautiful last day of the great day of the feast. Now, remember, Feast of Tabernacles. Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims. This is the sixth day of the celebration. And this is the culmination of the entire Feast of the Tabernacles. Everyone's attention is at their climax, okay? The Feast of Tabernacle, uh, let me remind you, it's pointing to the provision that God provides, okay? And when this speech takes place in the temple of Jerusalem... Uh, there was this tradition that this last day of the feast, they were to draw water from the pool of Siloam. And I've been there in Jerusalem. You, you, you can watch this online. Essentially, there's this pool of Siloam they just rediscovered, which is a huge, gigantic pool underneath the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, it's at the end of Ezekiah's tunnel. I went through all the whole tunnel. And then you have entered into this pool outside of the wall of the old city. Now, there was a procession of priests that needed to take water from that pool and pouring on the altar in the temple. And that was to be a memorial. Just remember the, 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 the tabernacles, the wilderness, 
the memorial of the water that came out of the rock. Moses struck the rock with his staff and in Horeb. And now Jesus takes this entire imagery in the temple. They're pouring the water on the temple, but he wants to use it to gather his spiritual harvest. What is he saying? I am that water. Anyone, anyone else that comes in the middle of the feast and says that, it would have been considered a megalomaniac. Okay? That's not something you would expect anyone to do. But Jesus can. Because He is truly the Messiah. You see, just as the tent in the Feast of Tabernacle were to be a reminder of God's love and His provision for His people in the wilderness, we know from chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus came and tabernacled with us. That's the word that John 1, 14 had used, if you remember. Which means He provides for us the ultimate fulfillment of all these Old Testament stories of the Feast of Tabernacle. He provides for you shelter through the sacrifice on the cross. So we must, almost as this head of the feast who speaks up and says, I am that water. Enter in the heavenly tabernacle through me. Because only me can grant you true living water, true living salvation. You cannot find it at the stagnant pool of the religious leaders. But in Christ, He Himself is the living water. He is the fulfillment of this tabernacle. Through His presence, through His provision, through the wilderness of this present life. Yes, we live still in corruptible tents, don't we? And... Yet He provides anyone who believes to a permanent dwelling in heaven. That through Jesus you enter the true rest of heaven forever. Friends, what a, what a true festival will it be when we enter into that celebration. Then nothing compares to that celebration in heaven. But now Jesus, again, look, look at His words. He sends this final appeal to all the people who are attending this Verse 37 to 38, they're attending the, the feast. They're doing this water ceremony in the temple. Here comes Jesus in the middle of the crowd and shouts out loud. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Remember this theme of the water. He had already said this at the Samaritan woman at Mount Gerizim. Now he comes to the temple in Jerusalem to say the same words to the Jews. And again, just like I commented to you, it is... It is shocking how instead of belief, the reaction among his own, he came to his own people, but they did not believe. Instead, the Gentiles will believe. The Jews will want to kill him. So Jesus is saying to the Jews, they're going through the motions, through the ceremony, and he's saying, I am the true water. Drink of me, and you will live. And the promise of verse 38 is clear. He who believes in me, once again pointing to faith, pointing to true, genuine acknowledgement, and also submission and reliance on Christ, that is the only precondition that you can be accepted and saved. And the promise is this. As Scripture said, out of his heart shall flow living waters. This is a promise that is found in Isaiah, which is also, by the way, repeated in Revelation 22. Once you get to the new heavens and new earth. In, in other words, from the Old Testament all the way to the end, Jesus and His water is the only way of salvation available for us. 
But the promise is that if you, if you receive Christ, just like you receive this water, out of your heart, that word should be translated actually through uh, your bowels almost, or your guts. It refers to the seat of your inward life, the source of all your feelings and desires. And therefore, some of your translations say heart. But the promise is that once you trust in Christ, from your heart will flow rivers of living water. You remember the woman at the well. That water, the living fresh current water that is not stagnant, that never runs out, but also that gives life. Satisfying your spiritual thirst. Granting you true rest for your soul. And the comment here that John adds in verse 39. Frames what we've seen so far about this theme of the living water throughout John. You remember uh, Nicodemus. You must be born the water of the Spirit. Which means the water is the referring to the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. Yes, he is on the background, but he's there active. It's still essential to bring your salvation. Why? The Holy Spirit is what convicts you of sin. The Holy Spirit is what brings new life to an otherwise spiritually dead person. The Holy Spirit produces that faith that otherwise you cannot have. That true trust in Christ that on your own you are not able to do. The Holy Spirit has to grant that too. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to understand the Scripture. So that now you read the Scripture no longer with blindness in your eyes. You understand what God says... And it applies all the blessings that Christ has done for you at the cross to your heart. Creating also that testimony in your heart and an assurance that you are a child of God, a true child of God. However, John comments that at the time, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. That even the disciples were still puzzled, okay, about the words of Jesus. They were still trying to make sense what He meant at the moment. But now John He's writing after Jesus has been resurrected, after He has ascended into heaven. And, uh, and actually, the apostles described for us that ascension. And what happened next? There's another feast, another Jewish feast, the, the Feast of Pentecost. And what happens there? The Holy Spirit comes upon all the, the disciples. And that is, by the way, another Thanksgiving feast. But in that case, the first fruits were the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant. And so... That is why Stephen Charnock, a theologian, says, No matter what the pipe is, whether it's made of gold, whether it's made of iron, as long as the water be the water of life, that is what matters. That is what matters. That the, Jesus sends now to us this open-ended, free-of-charge invitation. Are you thirsty? And by that I mean, is your soul, your soul in need of satisfaction? That you know that you need something more. That there's something missing in your hearts. That you long for relief from the burden of sin. Are you empty? And by emptiness I mean empty of your pride. Empty of the self-righteousness and unbelief and the rejection that we saw from the crowds. From the, from the Jewish leaders even. From the brothers, stepbrothers of Jesus. If you are thirsty if you are empty what you need to do is to come and drink his living water friend even if you know the lord if you had known the lord there's a way that you can starve from the fountain of christ and christ pushes you to come back and drink from him but if you have never tasted this water 
and it's for you something theoretical, but you have never experienced what it feels to actually be satisfied truly by the water of Christ. It is time for you to come and drink. It means you let your soul drink Jesus Christ, and that gives you life. That you believe Him for the substance of your soul. Just like you drink water every day for the substance of your body. And you know it, if you don't drink that water, you're going to die. We're all dying, friends. We're all, we're all in this wilderness. The, the world is a wilderness. What is this Feast of Tabernacles all about? What is this water from the rock? It's a water that flows even from the hard rock of your stony heart that rivers can flood your soul and that when that happens it will be noticeable it will no longer be a matter of questions it will be evident riches that you never imagined existed from the fountain that flows from the gospel you drink from that fountain of the gospel that jesus christ died on your place that he paid the wrath of god for your sin that the shed was blood for your iniquity he was crushed for your transgression. And you turn away from your sin and trust in that. Flowing waters comes out. You will not experience anymore the scorching heat. He will wipe away all your tears. And it is also involved more than just, you know, take a bottle of Coke and try it for yourself and feel better. What it involves here is a commitment. A personal commitment to the truth. That you can experience that truth personally. And you don't lo no longer go to depend on a system of religion or whatever other source of drinking you can find. Because that was the problem of the hearers of Jesus. You find true satisfaction of all your thirst by faith in Christ in His message of salvation. And remember, there's a, there's a victory. The fact that Christ ascended then grants you this gift for the life to come that if you drink of my water we'll get there you shall never die the water of life but the ultimate giver of this new spiritual life remains who the holy spirit what is the goal of the holy spirit to glorify jesus the holy spirit comes in the life of the true believer to do what to produce the fruit of the spirit what is the fruit of the spirit joy love peace kindness gentleness self-control Every true believer, it's experiencing that. And friend, it worries me. When I, whenever I meet self-professing Christians who are completely void of any of these fruits, or in fact, maybe full of the opposite fruits of anger, bitterness, and malice, and wrath, and this and that. No, the Spirit comes, and friends, the Spirit comes in the New Testament, not sparingly like in the Old Testament. This is not some partial revealing. It's poured out abundantly. At the Feast of Pentecost. I, I, I encourage you to pray for the Lord. To, to grant that gift. Just like Luke eleven thirteen says. If you then being evil. Know how to give good gifts unto your children. That's what we are. We are evil. Even in our parenting. Like, but how much more shall your heavenly father. Give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Jesus went back to heaven, but He did not leave us alone. He gave us a benefit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. But with the Holy Spirit comes also those who want to quench the Holy Spirit's work, don't they? 
the religious leaders, the crowds, and even the stepbrothers of Jesus. So what do we, what do we make of this chapter 7? We see how things are getting from bad to worse for Jesus. People are divided over Jesus. They either hate him and they want to kill him, or they love him. And, and they show their love by receiving him, despite the cost. The contrast could not be greater, friends. I mean, look at the half-brothers of Jesus. They despised him. Now they mock him. The world that he created debates about him and did not receive him. They're still lying in the power of the evil one. The spiritual leaders are plotting. What could be worse? I mean, they're really hating Jesus here. That prophecy that started in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Why? Because their deeds were evil. So they slander Jesus. They judge the true judger of men, Jesus Christ. They remain in the dark seeking for their very light that they refuse to let shine. Not only that, but here for us in chapter 7 begins this process from these uh, preachers and renowned teachers of the day to arrest, to kill the man who takes the popularity away. A man with a different kind of wisdom. All they want to do is to persecute him. But in the midst of all that opposition and hatred to the truth, this call from Jesus still goes out to us. Come and drink from me. Come and have this living water. And so will you come to Jesus today? Or will you despise his offer you and I are called to take the sounding alarm of Jesus' gospel. To heed this warning. To trust in this most hated and yet most loved man on earth. You must make him the most loved in this way. Through the Holy Spirit by may, be made new. And by now be identified with him and following him. Friend, this can be yours if you drink the living water of Jesus. Unless you, you prefer to keep starving with empty religion. With things that fall short of, of, of the life-giving power of Christ. Because while Jesus gives you living water, remember that this world leaves you starving in the wilderness. And so it's time for you to truly come to this water. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for this long chapter and the controversy, the harsh saying that are contained therein. We think about family. The place that should, should be home that then becomes foreign. We become foreign once we step up and, and want to follow Christ. And we face rejection. We face misunderstanding. And Lord, even to the point that they wanted to put to death Jesus Christ. Not the pagans, not the Romans, but the religious leaders, Lord. This is because you come to shine the light on our sin and the world doesn't like it. We pray, God, that everyone in this room, Lord, will seek to be truthful when the, the light shines and to actually turn toward you and drink this living water for their soul and not go in broken cisterns of this world, not seek anything else that cannot satisfy, that cannot produce any spiritual life. Help us to have the reality of things that we, we, we claim for ourselves, Lord. 
And that ultimately can be produced only by you through the Holy Spirit. And so we cling to that Spirit to come and grant us that true and better and lasting life. Be with us, Lord, especially as we gather together tonight as well, Lord, to continue to spend this day with you and seek your word and, and be with us until we come back. In Jesus' name I pray.